Today's guest, Ted Belilis, knows more about leadership than almost anyone on the planet. He's the global partner in charge of transformational leadership at the elite consulting firm, Alex Partners. In addition to having assessed the leadership chops of thousands of CEOs, he's a trusted advisor to some of the most iconic private equity firms in the entire world. Ted shares with us today some incredible lessons and amazing stories. Long gone are the old Wild West days of KKR and barbarians at the gate when private equity investors would buy a company, saddle it with massive debt, ruthlessly squeeze out costs, and sell the company for a quick buck. According to Ted, PE investors in today's world are taking a radically different approach, fundamentally more human approach that focuses on talent management and leadership development. One thing's certain, this approach will appeal massively to an entirely new generation of talent. So sit back and enjoy today's episode with Ted Belilis. First of all, thanks, Jeff, for uh, for this conversation. I've really been looking forward to it, and it's a pleasure and a privilege to be talking with you. Um, I think as, as most of, of your listeners know, I mean, um, Private equity has grown to be, you know, like $12 trillion uh, industry. So taking companies private with private investors' money along with pension funds and and debt funds and so forth gives investors uh, a lot of freedom and flexibility to, quote unquote, improve those companies, um, certainly grow them, sell them, ideally for a profit, and then get back to work and do the same thing over again. What Anyone will tell you, though, any kind of financial historian will tell you that the private markets have grown like crazy. Mm. So if you if just to take a sort of arbitrary date, 1989, Barbarians of the Gate came out. The story of KKR and Nabisco kind of was the almost the, the, the starter's pistol shot in the kind of public awareness of private capital. And so if you look back on those 30 plus years the growth, as I said, has been phenomenal. And here we are at a $12 trillion industry. Well, take so take the listeners back. And you know, I'm old enough to remember that. But what was Barbarians in the Gate? And why did that draw so much intense interest from the public? Well, it was quite, it, you know, it was quite a flashy story. RJR Nabisco was one of the, you know, on, you know time-tested, honored public companies and these brash leverage buyout people like Henry Kravitz and uh, you know and others came in and said, "Well, we're going we're gonna to take you private. We're going to take this kind of American company um, private." And it was it was quite flamboyant. The great book was written about it, um, but that really was the starter's pistol. That was the sign that said something's very different. Now, private equity had occurred up had occurred before 1989, certainly but always under the radar, much more about leverage buyout, much more about financial re-engineering. With that movement, with that time into the 90s, um, private equity got, got more involved in operational improvements, things beyond just simple financial engineering, and the targets just became a whole lot bigger. So when you say financial engineering, when KKR came in, didn't they really saddle the companies that they bought with a ton of debt and actually almost make it not impossible, but damn near impossible to survive because of these monthly interest payments? The, the formula, which hasn't really changed all that much, 
is to, you know, buy at the right level, load up debt, get out as much cost as you can, confirm a really robust strategy and put in a world-class management team. And then you, you stand the chance of really growing that company significantly, paying off the debt, et cetera, and doing it all over again. It's all about hitting that target exit number. And that's, that's you know, still very much the playbook today. So what has changed? I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm sure some things around the edges have changed. And I know you just wrote a seminal Harvard Business Review feature on talent management uh, of private equity owned portfolio companies. So in your view, what has changed since those barbarians at the gate days in the late 80s? Well, there's been there's been a couple, but I would say the biggest change Jeff has been the the awareness that talent and leadership are legitimate levers of value creation for for private equity. So, you know, back in the days of barbarians at the gate, even even, you know, 10 years ago, it was still very much a financial engineering kind of kind of process, right? You bought at the right number, you got the cost out, you put the debt on, you grow it. People are almost an afterthought hmm. in that people are, are are just fungible. And what's occurred it, for a number of reasons has been people are now coming back into that equation as being really variable. Why is that the case? It's the case because, first of all, the number of freestanding $400 million companies has gone down. There just aren't enough companies to buy. Number two, what private equity is buying, they tend to be platform deals or roll-ups, mm. right? So it's a, it's a different way of making money and a way in which people become really essential. If you're, if you're buying a big company and you're adding to it or you're buying you know, six or eight or nine you know, HVAC companies, melding, knitting those companies together is about people. And it's even about, dare I say, culture, mm. right? That's not a a pure financial play anymore. So people are becoming very important to private equity investors because increasingly with a 3.8, 3.9% unemployment rate in North America anyway, in the United States, you've got to attract and retain talent to those companies. So suddenly the people part of the value creation equation becomes essential. So back in the old days, I mean, it sounds, and it's going to sound a little counterintuitive for some of the listeners. I mean, did they just not care about people? Well, that's a really great question. And I wouldn't say, and it's impossible to answer, did they care about people or not? People were not part of the value creation equation. They could make, investors could make their money back for themselves and for their own LPs, for their own investors, mm -hmm. by simply, you know, either... Re, you know, re-engineering the, the balance sheet by, you know, laying off a bunch of people, cutting costs. And now it's it's really quite different. You've got to attract and retain talent. The talent that you're attracting and retaining, Jeff, tends to be younger. So if we take all the Gen Zs in the United States and we add in maybe 20% of really young millennials, so kind of 32-year-olds and below, you're at 50% of the U.S. workforce. And you know that number is just going up and up and up really pretty rapidly. Mm -hmm. So just think about what a 30-year-old needs from their employer versus what a 55-year-old needs 
from their employer. And now you could see right away why leadership and people and talent are so important now to private equity investors. Okay, suppose you cut my age in half and I'm 25. Why would I want to go work for a private equity owned company versus a Google or an NVIDIA or a VC backed, you know, really exciting company? What is what does PE do that's so special in their portfolio companies? Well, you may not want to go work for for I mean that's that you've just honed in on the really essential question, right? So so if if you if you if you the 30-year-old or whoever the 25-year-old opted for private equity, um here's what our research says would attract you. First of all, you would have equity in the company. Now you could have some equity at Google, I'm sure, um, but you would have you would have equity in the company. You would feel like you're more in control uh, or you have a bigger say in kind of your future. Um, all the all the things that we said at the outset of our interview about private equity, having more flexibility, being sort of under the radar, not having to report their their earnings every quarter. It would it would it could make for a more dynamic environment for you. And then finally, it's the leadership question. Hopefully. As a 30-year-old, you have a CEO or a C-suite or an executive leadership team that really gets you, that really understands you, that says, you know, we're going to grow this thing and then we're going to go and do it again. And I'm going to take you with me. Hmm. The, the bureaucracy, the administrative morass that sometimes accompanies those big public companies mm -hmm. shouldn't be there for you. Now again, this doesn't always doesn't always shake out the, that way. You may want to go to Google, and you may want to be able to you know get yourself situated in a part of that organization where you do have a clear career path. Mm -hmm. um, but oftentimes, it, it's feeling like for many younger people, like I'm not getting enough feedback, I'm not getting enough opportunity. Maybe this private equity backed venture is going to accelerate my career faster and hey maybe i'm going to make a few bucks more in the process so interesting and what are some of the portfolio companies doing around um culture building and talent management in some of these really interesting portfolio companies that they own that might attract people like uh, a younger version of myself yeah well that's and, and that in some ways is the sixty-four thousand dollar question so just i just want to put your question in the context of where private equity has been, right? Private equity, we're in the we're in the first inning, not even the second inning. We're in the first inning of private equity waking up to the importance of talent and culture. So, what are they doing? Well, what they're starting to do, Jeff, is they're starting to hire human capital partners mm -hmm. that sit next to the deal team. And if nothing else, remind the deal team that people are important. Uh, seriously, what a human capital partner can do right away and what, what some of the best PE firms are doing is that they're building leadership and talent right into the value creation thesis, right into the accelerated value creation plan. So they're making sure that there are talent reviews being done. They're making sure that the CEO who's either being hired for the Portco, the portfolio company, or, um, or, is, or is there already, mm -hmm. understands how to identify 
attract, retain, and develop the best talent. Because, go ahead. If I'm a deal guy that cut my teeth, you know, in the financial reengineering and the PE firm, am I just saying, why do I care about all this soft talent stuff? I never had to worry about it before and I made a ton of money. Why, why do I need to worry about it? Or am I wrong? I mean, is there like a good symbiotic relationship between the deal guys and the PE firm and these new talent guys that they're hiring? Well, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. And I would, the way I would answer that is there's a lot, there are lots and lots of deals got deal guys saying, well, you know, what is all this BS? I, I just, to, just as you put it, Jeff, I cut my teeth, not doing any of this. Well, I think the smart ones are really waking up because they understand that again, the, the, the kinds of deals that they're doing tend to be roll-ups tend to be, um, they tend to be the kinds of deals where knitting together culture, knitting together, you know, um, um, different values of different organizations and putting them together to retain talent is absolutely essential. And some of them are coming kicking and screaming, but they're coming to the conclusion that they do have to pay attention. The ones that aren't are, are suffering poor returns. I mean, look, we're still living in a world of relatively high interest rates, though they're coming down. The carrying costs are increasing. The hurdle rate, therefore, gets increased. And, and deal guys are nothing if not financially very, very savvy. And they know that they need to pull every lever they can to create value. So kicking and screaming, most of them are coming to the conclusion that, hey, maybe human capital has something to offer here. So, so let's explore a little bit more deeply your example of this roll-up. So, you, you know, there's a private equity firm that finds a great space, you know, an industry niche to invest in, and they see several different companies uh, or bolt-on acquisitions, each of which has their own unique culture. So in order for that PE firm to realize the value, you know, the economic value, they have to make sure that they have sort of a master plan that, for example, integrates these different cultures. So how does that work in reality? What does that talent guy in the PE firm do that actually helps at the ground level, you know, getting all of these different roll-ups to integrate well as one seamless entity with the same, you know, mission and same core values and same culture? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Well, combining companies puts a premium on leadership and strategic talent and organizational development strategies. So what are some of those? Well, one is, particularly given the fact that carrying times have gone from three to five years to now five to seven years, succession planning is really very important. You know, there's some there's some good parallels between the sports world, Jeff, and the investment world, right? You can, you can you know, be a kind of a coach that goes after the stars, uh, or you can be someone who's really developing a farm system where you're kind of growing your own. All things being equal, you really want to grow your own. You really want to be able to develop people in your organization that have shared, shared culture, shared values, shared purpose, and promote them from within. So one of the things that can be done is that that human capital partner can look across the portfolio of companies of a private equity firm and say, okay, what's the playbook here for succession planning? What's the playbook here for developing people? Let's identify first the critical value creating roles. By the way, in the world of AI, those 
those value creating roles might be in the middle of the organization. They may be in the bottom of the organization. Because they aren't necessarily at the C-suite. And you're right? saying because the younger generation may have a more intuitive feel and had grown up with AI, whereas the older executives may not know it as well. That's exactly right. And so, you know, they're going to look at that. Then they're going to be able to hold their help their deal partners hold their CEOs accountable for making sure that there is leadership development, that there are um, career development opportunities. Let me just quote you some numbers, Jeff, because um, at Alex Partners, we do this um, Alex Partners Disruption Index. This is now our fifth year where we've sampled 3,300 executives globally. And by and the I way, mean, this is for the listeners, I just want to let them know that this is the premier research report in the industry that looks at this. And you say this is now your fifth year doing this? Yeah, that's exactly right. We also do a private equity leadership survey, and this is our ninth year doing this. But the data I'm going to share with you right now is from our ADI, the Alex Partners Disruption Index. It's on our website. But of these 33 global executives, 25% are investing, 25% compared to last year, are investing more in leadership development. 60% more than last year are offering network and professional development opportunities to their people. 33% are investing in training for growth. Hmm. And, and by the way, 50% of the CEOs are worried about falling behind in the development of their own skills. Hmm. So what, what we're finding that are on kind of CEOs' minds globally is the need to provide their people with, with networking, with professional development, with career growth, et cetera. All these things are things that that human capital partner at the PE firm can convene you know, the, their, their people on and help their deal guys catch up with what needs to happen now. Would, would this have happened if the time frame for holding the investment was still shorter, like four or five years? You know, because now they have to worry more about retaining the talent, developing them, thinking about, you know, the overall leadership development paradigm versus just saying, well, I'm going to sell this asset anyway. Why invest the money in the short term? If you can still sell an asset in three to four years, then you you, you might get away with not being what not needing to think about this. But look, you know, CEO turnover is up, CEO tenure is down, hold times are definitely increasing for the vast majority of private investments. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of the lucky few that can kind of use the old model, mm -hmm. use the old model, but for most most investors, there's no looking back. Where where we, you know, now there's there's there are more PE firms than ever before. The competition is fiercer than ever before. And by the way, Jeff, most of these companies have already been private equity owned, which means equity investors have already gotten the costs out. So one PE firm selling the company to another PE firm, where are you gonna where are you gonna cut the fat? There's no more financial engineering opportunity when a company's been passed from one PE firm to the next. Or another, or another. You're exactly right. And in some ways, in answer to your earlier question, like why is why are people thinking about people kind of so late in the game in terms of creating value? It's because they've pulled every other lever they have. So let's go back to the sports world that you brought up because I think it's interesting. And let me throw out an example, and you tell me if and how it relates to the world of private equity. 
So in the in basketball, uh, in the NBA, you know, there's the example of the world champion Denver Nuggets from last year, and they are um, known for homegrown developing talent, investing early, you know, in people that they recruit straight from the draft. And even if it takes them a long time to develop, they stick with it. And then every once in a while, they'll hire, you know, some external kind of star to come in and supplement things. But by and large, they're a homegrown organization with unbelievable results. They're the, they're the world champions. Okay. On the other side, you know, there's like uh, the, the Los Angeles list listeners will hate me, but there's like the Lakers, you know, and they try to recruit external stars and blend them together like a LeBron James and an Anthony Davis and a handful of other stars. And there's a little bit of homegrown talent, but by and large, it's recruiting external talent and trying to get them to blend and work well together. How does this sort of analogy work in portcos of private equity owned businesses and which are better or what are the pros and cons to each? Yeah, this is a, a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, as, a, as a Celtics fan, not a Nuggets fan, it seems like yesterday that, you know, I, I could I can just hear Larry Bird saying, you know, I devote my life to basketball and I devote my life to the Boston Celtics. Um, that's you know, there's there's that is that is virtuous. That's what you strive for in business whenever you can whenever you can get it with that selective star hiring from from time to time. But there's this there's a very interesting difference in this leadership study that we've run for nine years that I alluded to before. We have two tracks in the study. We look at private equity investors and we look at the CEOs of the port codes. And they have two extremely different views of leadership. Hmm. Generally speaking, private equity investors fall prey to what I call the myth of the magical leader. They think if they hire the right man or the right woman, particularly in the CEO role, that that person's going to change everything, that their their whole their their returns are going to be great, their water's going to taste better, their air's going to be cleaner, everything's going to be wonderful because this magical person is going to know how to transform the organization. When Wait, we ask those leadership was a team sport. Well, there you go. When you ask CEOs and the port codes, they don't answer that way at all. They know they know leadership is 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 executed in the trenches. It's a team sport. There's no I in team. Everybody's going to get along. And one of the things we do for portcos and, and private equity investors is we do pre-hire assessments mm -hmm. on people. And sometimes that magical leader thing gets triggered because someone's very charismatic, very extroverted very, dare I say, narcissistic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So think of the athlete who takes all the oxygen in the room because he because he or she thinks that they're just God's gift to the planet. They're actually poison. They're actually poison to a, to a team environment, right? And operators know that. CEOs know that. Private equity investors, particularly the ones who are very financially engineering oriented, they don't realize that oftentimes they get sucked in and, you know, really dastardly kind of results emerge. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, um, Adam Newman at, at WeWork. Um, you know, this is a guy that, you know, very, very kind of full of himself, takes the oxygen, took the oxygen out of the room, 
Um, that's that's really what you have to be aware of. So Mark Cuban once told me actually on this podcast that he he sucks at assessing talent. And, and I asked him why. And I said, hey, the Mavericks won a world championship. Why, why are you so bad at it? He said, and he said exactly what you said. You know, I sometimes get seduced by this charisma or this extroversion or even maybe the narcissism of someone. And you yep. think that that correlates to performance, but it doesn't. And from your experience, you know, how do you guys at Alex Partners assess talent when you're helping a PE firm, you know, try to gauge how great or not so great the talent is in a portfolio company that they're thinking about hiring? Yeah. Well, first of all, kudos to Mark for, for you know, saying that about himself. And I'm sure he's brilliant at lots of things and putting your hand up and saying kind of the hardest thing in the world, which is assessing talent and hiring people. I want to I, I want to bring other people in on that because I'm not so good. I mean, kudos to him for saying that. I, I think that the way that we help um, private equity investors is that we, we begin with the investment thesis. We begin with the value creation plan. What are you trying to do here? Where's your exit? How you how are you going to get there? And what we then do is we take that and translate that into a kind of accountability matrix, which is a way of, of saying, okay, for the critical value creating roles, what are the critical outputs and what are the capabilities and competencies you're looking for in a person to be able to achieve that. This becomes in, in, in great relief when you're looking at a founder-led company, Jeff, and, and the founder, let's say, let's say he's been there for 30 years, you know that it's just chock full of values and purpose and friendships. And you gotta be really careful when you buy a company like that because if the founder exits or when the founder exits, because usually they're, they're getting up there in age, mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the intangible value in that company can go out the door. So you really need a human capital plan at that point. And that's how that's what we do. We work with the deal teams very closely to defining the kind of talent they need. And then we assess both the existing talent and potentially new talent that they might bring in so they can they can build an equally robust or even more robust kind of culture. Did I hear you correctly and that the CEOs that you polled in your most recent survey have said they personally think that they need to develop as a leader? Because this plays in so well with the theme of this Imperfect Leaders podcast that there really is no such thing as a perfect leader. So are you actually hearing CEOs becoming more self-aware and developmentally focused? 100%. Over 50% of CEOs in our latest ADI are worried about falling behind in the development of the skills. Now, their skills. Now, that's a lot. A lot of that's been driven by AI. Mm-hmm. The CEOs know that they don't know AI, uh, and they 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 barely understand kind of the impact it can have. But it's not just AI skills. It's it's digitization in in general, and it it puts again such a huge emphasis on having the right people in the right roles you know, executing against the right goals. And and because CEOs know they, they can't, no matter how much they try, they can't, certainly can't know everything. And again, I draw the parallel of, you know, the private equity deal guy that's looking for the external superstar slash corporate savior to come in when in reality, you know, it's actually the opposite from the CEO's point of view saying there, there seems to be a more of a humility 
Oh yeah, when you know we would we would study the traits of effective CEOs, and as recently as five years ago, adaptability and flexibility kept coming up. Communication skills kept coming up, certainly through the the pandemic. Now we're hearing less about adaptability and flexibility, more about self awareness, emotional intelligence, and an insatiable ability to learn, an insatiable desire and ability. To learn, so it's learning ability, it's emotional intelligence, and it's self awareness. And I would say those three things to any private equity investor. If you're having dinner or lunch with a prospective CEO, find a way to test for those three things mm -hmm. are incredibly important. So let me play devil's advocate. And first of all, you're preaching to the choir. I think those three things are super important for any leader, but. What about someone that says, oh, those soft skills, you know, I, I don't want somebody that's too soft and squishy. I want somebody that's really results oriented and driven and going to push the boundaries. You know, it, what would you tell that person? Well, I quote the late, great Jack Welch and who said the soft stuff is really the hard stuff. <laughs> is, it? One. is it? It so, is. So does the soft... Do the soft skills, are they sort of the internal building blocks that allow that CEO to deliver consistently on the hard stuff? I really believe so. I mean, this is, what do you want to call it? An ep epochal change, a sea change. Again, look through the lens of your employees. Your employees are under 35 and that group is just growing. Do you really think that by pounding the table and telling people what they should do, do you really think you're going to keep people in your company? It just doesn't, it just simply doesn't work. I mean, everyone's got a computer in their hands. It's called their phone. Every Everyone under 30 is on social media, if not over 30. They're all communicating through Glassdoor, Vault.com, who the, who, the, who the good CEOs are, who the non-good CEOs are, what companies have purpose and, and meaning in their mission, what companies are giving back to the environment, what companies have diverse and inclusive environments, they're all communicating with each other. If you're not going to, as a leader, if you can't adapt yourself to this new world that we're all living in, mm -hmm. then I think you're going to you're going to pay the price. And beyond just the internal focus in the culture and the people of the company, they, the the world around them is changing so quickly and so intensely. So if there's a CEO that digs in their heels. It said and says my original answer was correct. I'm not adapting. I'm not changing because they see it as a sign of weakness. I mean, that's almost a recipe for disaster in today's fast-moving world. It, it really, it really is a hundred percent. And to bring it back to our private equity topic, you can see this play out in CEOs of portcos that have an HR function that's old-fashioned HR, right? It's pay and benefits. Uh, the, the person who heads it up is called the head of HR versus a CEO who has a real CHRO, a chief human resources officer, who outsources all the administration pay and benefits and who is essentially the chief talent officer, who's all about creating the kind of culture, the kind of environment, the kind of talent that makes people want to work for that company. And one of the things, going back to solutions here, that human capital partners and private equity firms can do is to quarterly convene the CEO, the CHRO, and the CFO of their portco companies and saying, okay, 
where are the value creating roles, who's in them, and are you paying them well? Hmm. Are you spreading compensation like peanut butter over everybody the same? Or are you really differentiatingly paying people for the value that they're adding in the organization? That's another one of those old world, new world things, Jeff. Like in the old world, that's how it was all done, right? I mean, the, the CEO had a special package, the CFO had a special package, but then basically everyone was kind of the same. Now, what, what we're seeing and what we're recommending, of course, is to make it much more differentiated than that. Interesting. And you mentioned a, a, another interesting word earlier, succession. You know, some of our listeners will think about the hit HBO show called Succession that's won all these awards, but it actually really happens in these companies. I mean, why is this important now in portfolio companies? Well, I was I spoke at a conference uh, maybe three or four months ago, and, and part of the, the run-up to the, the afternoon program, there were all these breakout groups, and or a few breakout groups. And I was in this breakout group of, of private equity-backed managers. Some were CEOs, some were CFOs, some were heads of sales. And because of the, the increasing hold times, hmm. they have they had they have really critical problems around succession. There are some folks that signed on for a five-year term, but because that's gonna go longer, they're aging out. They are either either literally aging out or they're like, look, I've been at this too long. I just I don't want to, I don't want to be here. They look and they see, do I have anyone on my team that can be promoted? They've invested nothing in leadership development. There isn't anybody that can come up and after them. So now they got to go outside the organization. It's going to be probably a more expensive hire. They're going to bring that person in. Is that does that person have the same values and fit in the, the culture in the same way? So that that's that's a genuine succession problem that you know literally hundreds of private companies are facing. Again, this is the difference between is, you know, portfolio company A, do they have a head of HR or do they have a genuine CHRO, right? And this is this is the farm system versus the star system again. Are you growing your own? Are you building your own talent? Or are you kind of back of the envelope? Let's do that search. Oh, we need a search over here. Oh, we need a person in that. That, that kind of picking people and plugging them into holes is the opposite of what I'm preaching. What I'm preaching is that you need a talent, strategic talent development plan for all your portfolio companies that's several years out into the future. Gotcha. And this conversation is going so fast because it's so interesting, but I do want to focus just for a few minutes on you. How, how did you end up at Alex Partners and you know, what's the culture like? And like I said, at the very beginning of this conversation, I think you've forgotten more about all of these issues around PE and talent management that most of us still know. Well, I, I'm in my tenth year, actually my eleventh year now at Alex Partners, and I'm I, I'm 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 thrilled. I, I joined. You know, I'm a psychologist by training. I taught at HBS for a number of years. I've been a part of a number of smaller consulting organizations, but I came to Alex over ten years ago precisely because. The practice of leadership and talent should be integrated with all the other core business functions, the core finance function, the core operations function, the core sales and marketing functions. Alex Partners is a 44-year-old firm. We're over $2 billion in revenue. We're in 40 markets around the world. 
And I have some of the greatest kind of subject matter expert colleagues that anybody could have in whatever sector you want. And what this job allows me to do as a partner in this firm is to really come in on the leadership angle in an in a aerospace company, in a CPG company, in a, you know, industrials company, alongside my colleagues. Uh, much of our work is private, is with private equity because Alex Partners works fast and is very outcome oriented. And of course, that's the byline for private equity. How did you become so comfortable personally, you know, giving make or break talent management advice to leaders of some of the top portfolio companies and private equity firms in the entire world? Well, I, I think part of it comes from my training. So I, I've had, you know, I've, I've, I, I joke with my family, you know, I've spent like 25 years in school. So, I mean, I, the master's and PhD and postdoc in clinical psychology, I mean, I have a, a, a set of tools and a set of experience where I think, you know, distinguishing the, the, the charming leader from the narcissistic leader, you know, I feel very confident in that. I've also done, I don't know, well over 3,000 assessments of, of leaders and leadership teams. I've made lots of mistakes along the way and I've, I've learned from that experience. So, and I care deeply about my clients and I care deeply about what they're invested in. So these are, these are very, very high stake decisions and I don't take them lightly. You said you've made some mistakes. Give me an example of a mistake that you've made and you know how that made you feel and what you learned from it. Um, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working with the founders of, of many of the iconic, our iconic um, private equity firms. And one in particular, I think, just liked to intellectually spar with me. So he had me do an evaluation of a person. And whenever we do an evaluation, Jeff, we always have to define what the role is, right? You're an A player, Jeff, for some roles, and you're an F for others. Same for me, same for everybody. And if we don't define what the role is, the assessment is almost not worth a lot. And what one of the mistakes that I made was allowing the client to tell me he wanted to hire the person for this role, but then he changed to that role, right? And precisely the strengths that would make that, that person a success in role A really hindered him in role B. And I wasn't able to really get the client to both see that and, and not play that kind of game with me. So kind of almost a kind of gotcha. So it's it's like, you know, I, I like to tell our clients, we actually do two assessments every time you send us a person. We are assessing the person, but we're assessing the role as well. Ted, this, is, uh, this has been the fa uh, fastest and best hour of my day. And I can't thank you enough for sharing your insight, your wisdom and, and your stories with us and our listeners. Thank you for listening to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. If you have a question for our guest, feel free to reach out at www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, we'll see you next week.